you can get it, and then I'll start talking. Uh, you know, what what uh, Pastor Richard was just talking about, that's so good. It, uh, we adopted something years ago. We, we shamelessly stole it from Bethel. I heard uh, Bill Johnson make the comment, I think it was Bill, that uh, they always open their meetings with testimonies, their, their staff meetings. And so we started doing that years ago. And uh, because you want to be under... You want to be under the influence of that, those stories, when you make decisions. You know, you, you, want to, you want to remember what God did in the past as you're making decisions for the future. You want to remember the lion and the bear when you're facing Goliath. And so we, uh, we open our staff meeting with stories of what God has done. And uh, often we, it's hard to get to business because there's things God's doing. And uh, we can talk ourselves happy. And uh, then, then uh, and so. We, uh, that's, that's a good policy. Okay, I'm almost done here. All right, here we go. Look at that. Testing one, two. There we go. All right. Did everybody sleep good? I slept good, but short. It, uh, morning comes earlier every day, it seems. But, uh, this morning I, I, I try to get up early on, on, uh, whenever I'm speaking and I always keep a little five-hour energy drink right next to my bed, so I set the alarm early, slam that down, pull the blankets over my head, and start to pray. And because uh, otherwise, I will—I uh, have at times said, "Lord, I don't have to get up early. Give me a dream." And uh, there's times He'll accommodate that. I encourage you to ask Him for one. But uh, it, t- this morning was not a time for dreaming; it was a time to get up. So uh, anyway, I, the Lord began to speak to me about a principle. Uh, expand on a principle that he began to deal with me about last Sunday. It's something I've talked on before, but just, you know how the Lord will, will give you something, he'll speak to you something, and then he'll revisit that and layer it and just keep expanding that. And, and uh, the, the truth of God is an amazing thing, how it's all interconnected. And uh, the more you know, the more questions you have. You know, it's like uh, one, one revelation will, will have like, come with five different doors, and now you got to go search behind those doors. And I just, I just love, love how God operates. And so anyway, I was, I, was list, or, uh, I was just writing down some things that we're going to talk about this morning, because I believe the Lord wants to deal with something this morning that Christopher addressed last night. And uh, so anyways, that, finally I thought, I better get up, get ready. So I put, I put on a podcast, Chris Valentin. I thought, that sounds like an interesting title put on Chris, and lo and behold, he was talking about some of the very things I'd written down. So I'm just glad that Chris is now hearing from the Lord. And uh, no, seriously, it was just, it was a validation, you know, it's like, okay, Lord, this is confirmation. Uh, because last week, uh, I, I, the Lord had been talking to me about some of these same principles, and I was, uh, early Sunday morning, I was writing down some things, and then I made the mistake of dialing into Lou Engel and Dean Briggs they had a conference over in Colorado. That was a dangerous thing to do because all of a sudden I lost what the Lord was saying. I was so gripped by what they were saying that I thought, I got to preach on this. And, uh, but during worship, lo and behold, we have this new song and there's one line from what the Lord has talked about. Okay, Lord, that's it. So God is good to confirm. By the way, this is a shameless plug. When I uh, talk about Dean Briggs, uh, how many of you know who Dean Briggs is? Dean uh, and Lou co-authored the book, The Jesus Fast. Uh, Dean is on the executive team at IHOP out of Kansas City, and uh, just a wonderful man, uh, great, great teacher, apostolic teacher, 
uh, tremendous insight and revelation. So we had him in last year. Uh, really, I had him come to, he was going to promote something that IHOP was doing. And, uh, and then they kind of put the hold on that. So I had him scheduled to promote something that they weren't going to do. And uh, so he called and told me that probably isn't a good idea. I, I'm willing to come and speak, but if you don't want me to come, I said, no, why don't you come anyway? And uh, he brought a message to our house. It was like a bomb went off. And that thing just gripped me. And so we've stayed in touch, and we're going to have him back in the end of March, uh, the, the last weekend of March, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the first weekend of April. Uh, so if you can make it out, it's going to be a Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Uh, similar to this, we just pulled out the sa- Sunday night and the Friday afternoon. But uh, if you can make it out, it's free of charge and just come and... Uh, but uh, Dean has invited Mark Brisboy, a, a, a friend of his out of Canada, an apostolic leader out of Canada. Uh, and so I really feel like, uh, and so I'm in danger of getting into something I wasn't intending to, but we're going we're gonna to go here for just a second. Uh, I believe that there are certain moments in human history that are much more significant than others. There, you know, there's, there's this phrase in Scripture that we see again and again, uh, these, these two ideas of times and seasons. We touched on it yesterday. Uh, you know, they, uh, you know, the, you know the, uh, the weather systems, but you don't know the signs of the times. And Jesus is alluding to this. It's, let's go back here. Matthew 16, Jesus said, uh, essentially he's saying the way we say it in modern day English is, Red at night, sailor's delight. Red in the morning, sailor's warning. But you, because the, the Pharisees were saying, show us a sign. And he was saying, there's already a sign. There's things happening all over that you are not in tune to. And therefore, you're looking for new confirmation when there's already plentiful confirmation all around you. And so he begins to talk about, he, he's referring to meteorology, which is the science of understanding weather conditions or weather patterns. So what Jesus is insinuating is that the kingdom of God operates by patterns. It's called His ways. God showed His ways to Moses, but His works to Israel. David cried out, show me your ways, Lord. What he's saying is that there is a predictability about God in one sense. God is predictable if you understand His ways. Now, the fact is we're never going to plumb the depths of His ways completely because He's infinite and we're finite. But you can get some traction in that area and you can begin to realize and and learn how God operates. And so God invites us into that. He longs to show His ways to us. Uh, God, God loves to operate by two sides to one coin. There's uh, mysteries and revelation. Matter of fact, Paul says, he talks about the administration of the mystery. The, the, the word administration, I touched on this yesterday. The, the, that word there in the Greek is oikos nomos. It, it has to do with somebody that oversees the operations of a household. It's somebody that oversees the distribution of resources. And Paul said, I'm an administer of or a steward of the mysteries. That's how Paul referred to himself. There's, a, there's an element of apostolic ministry that they steward mysteries because those mysteries, when they're released into the atmosphere, they are game changers. They shift times and seasons. And so 
Uh, we don't have time to get into under, talking about time this morning, but it's a fascinating study, and I would encourage you to do so because there are times and seasons in Scripture that they are launched through fresh revelation and consummated through the purpose of that revelation. What I mean by that is this, that God, when God wants to do something fresh, He releases a fresh revelation that pulls us in, but there's a purpose behind the revelation. God is not just interested in tickling our ears for us to think, wow, we know more. God wants to bring, matter of fact, Peter puts it this way, grace and peace be unto you through your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the conduit of grace, the way grace gets to you, grace is the substance of the Christian life. It's, you're not only saved by grace, Paul said, surely you've heard of the grace that is on me to be an apostle. The substance of his calling was grace. It always is. And so anything God calls us to do, he releases the grace upon us so that we can accomplish that thing. But here's the thing. The conduit through which grace arrives to us is knowledge. If you don't gain understanding of what's happening in your life, you can't capitalize on what God is doing. It can affect you, you can, you can enjoy it, but you're not going to really be able to cooperate with it. That's why it's important to know His ways. And so God, will, God teaches us, you put it this way, in order to grow, you got to grow in your know. <laughs> you got to know to grow. Uh, so that's why revelation is part of how God grows us up and moves us along. And matter of fact, there is corporate revelation, there's deposits God will give to a company of people to move them from glory to glory. That's why different churches will carry different things, and you'll hear different messages coming out of those churches. And the danger is then one church says, well, they don't preach what we do. We don't agree with them. Yeah, you're not called to what they're called to. And so who are we to judge another man's servant? Just let them run after God, and let's be the stewards of the revelation that we have. But God wants to give us things, and so what He does... When God begins to drop fresh revelation into a body, what He's doing is He is releasing a new mandate, something we're to grow into, and that the shifting of the season happens when we fulfill the purpose, when we've grown into that revelation and it becomes a fixture in the environment. Now God can release more. And so uh, we see this show up in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul said... Uh, he talked about men of old long to look into these things, but they were withheld until now, and they're being released through God's holy apostles and prophets. It's, something, it's kind of a ballpark way of he's saying it. So he's saying, the, the idea is this, there is certain revelation that has a release date. Now we talked yesterday about three levels of wisdom. You know, there's the ask and you shall receive. That's low-lying fruit. It's available to everyone. And if you ask, God will give it to you. It's just there for the asking. There's not a lot of contending, there's not a lot of labor, there's not a, it's not a process, it's an event. God, can I have this? Yes. Then there's seek, and ye shall find. Ask is James 1, it's very clear. Any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. Proverbs chapter 2 says, seek for wisdom, cry out for understanding, seek for it as hidden treasure. That is an upgrade, that is a higher level of Wisdom. Paul Backhouse. I was telling them yesterday that this, this can sound like Gnosticism. And there's a danger to that. Paul's a, a theology geek. So uh, it, uh, 
But it can't. And, but the reason Gnosticism became an error was because there's a reality to mysteries in Revelation. So here's the thing. God has mysteries that He hides from us, and then there's revelation. The word revelation is like something like apocalypto. The book of Revelation is the apocalypse. You know, it's, what it literally means is to pull the blanket off. God keeps it covered. There are certain things that God will keep covered until you're ready for it. And there are certain things God will keep covered until humanity is ready for it. You look, the Tower of Babel, it's a fascinating thing. What did God say? He said, we got to confuse these boys because if we don't, they'll be capable of anything. Nothing will be impossible for them. So he confused them to greatly delay and slow down the dissemination of revelation so that they can't compare notes. My dad told me one time, he said, you know, if God wouldn't have done that Bible thing, they'd have probably had iPhones in a hundred years. That wigged me out. You know, it's probably true. So what did God do? He slowed it down. So if it was God that put the barrier, and you can make a very strong argument that today we have overcome Babel. You know, you can pick up a phone, talk in English to a guy that then hears it in Mandarin, responds in Mandarin, and you hear it in English. The internet, it, it's an amazing thing. That little phone there, I can get, I'm always on the front row looking things up. You know, you, I, I've, I've become less adept at finding where passages are because I'll just Google it, you know. People think, wow, he really knows the word. No, Google does. You know. And uh, so I'll just look it up on my phone. It's an amazing thing. So if God was the one that placed the barrier there and it's now gone, who was it that allowed it to happen? In the end, Scripture talks about at the end of time, knowledge will increase. And we're seeing that it's exponential. It's an amazing thing. There are times where God will withhold things because He's not ready to release them because He understands that those things are the game changers. I would propose to you that that is second and third level revelation stuff. That The third level of revelation is where it says, knock and the door shall be opened to you. That is spoken of in Ephesians chapter 3, where it says it's the unsearchable wisdom hidden within God Himself. It's the vault of God's heart, and you've got to pound on His heart to get at that revelation. Again, the, the other two types of revelation are even accessible to the occult. There are people that operate in the occult, and even, even in... Uh, it, it's fascinating to me that... We, get off on this little tangent here, but uh, that science is discovering, there, there's a merging of science and spiritual reality. That through the study of science, they're touching on the spiritual realm. It, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And God put a limit to that, but He's taking off the governor, and the governor is revelation. That's why Paul said he was an administrator of the mystery. The governor on history is revelation because God knows the more revelation He allows, the more people are going to advance. And He has His plan. And so how does God govern? Two of the primary tools God uses to govern, they're connected, is mysteries and revelation. Mysteries and revelation. 
So how do we access that revelation? I said this yesterday, and I firmly believe it. Your hunger for a new thing is actually an indication, often an indication, that God is already, He's beginning to draw you into that process. You can put hunger is the invitation. Isaiah 6 has this very troubling phrase, and it's reiterated in Matthew 13. Remember where Jesus talks about the, the soils, the four types of soils of the human heart. And He said, there was a farmer who went out to sow. On The first one was the, uh, the trodden path. It, it had a lot of traffic on it. It was hard. So the seed would skitter across the top, stay there, and the birds of the air, which were the... He goes, and luckily, Jesus interprets this for us. So the birds of the air, which are the demonic realm, come and steal the seed before you get in your car in the parking lot. The second type of soil is stony ground hearer. It, there, yeah, the second type is a stony ground here. So it looks like good soil on the surface, but under the surface are unyielded areas. There's stone that the, the seed cannot penetrate. There's unyieldedness beneath the surface. So what happens is, the seed goes down, and instead of the roots going down deep, they have to go out in search of water. Because what you and I think is a nice day, oh, the sun's out. Plants are like, bummer. Because it's going to dry up our water supply, and we've got to get our roots down deep looking for water. So the trials that Jesus interprets that out are to cause you to go down at, after a deeper supply, and they're to grow you. But if you have unyielded areas in your life, rather than going deep, if two things are going to happen. You're going to look across the surface and you're going to give all of your efforts to that which is seen above the surface. And you look at that guy, why wow, he got saved on Tuesday? He's going to be Billy Graham by Thursday and by Sunday he's backslidden. Because he, the, the, the roots aren't going to go deep. It dries up the surface and the plant dies. The third type of soil was the thorny ground here. And it says that they grow up, the seed of the Word, the revelation begins to penetrate because understanding is penetration. That's what Jesus says. He says that that trodden path, when the seed hits it, if you can't understand, the seed of the Word cannot get beneath the surface. It just sits there and the enemy can steal it. The way to keep the enemy from stealing what God is trying to give you is through get, gaining understanding and allowing that thing to work deep into your heart. And so then you have this thorny ground here and it says it's the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this life, and the pleasures of this age grow up with it. It's like they're growing together. I have a hunch that one of the things Jesus is alluding to that when you are really, when you're walking with God and the seed begins to take root in your life, it brings other things. There's, your life begins to be in order. You become a better employee. You get promoted. You make more. You're, you're not spending money on stupid things like pot, you know. And, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, wow, you know that 40, well, it's probably, I don't know what a bag goes for today. When I, back in my day, it was 40 bucks for an ounce, you know. It's like, you know, that 40 bucks, all of a sudden I got 40 bucks, you know, and, and you got it to do other things, you know, and so it starts to grow up. But what happens is those distractions choke out the word so it won't bring forth fruit. And then we have the good soil that's 20 or 30, 60 and 100 fold. So Jesus tells this parable. And if you look at Matthew 13, I want to say it's Luke 8 and Mark 4 or Mark, Luke 4, Mark 8, there's 
the, the, the three synoptic gospels, he tells this parable. And you got to lay them side by side to see what's really happening here. Because each one, because, why? Because the mysteries are hidden. They're, it's not just on the surface. God is too good a steward to give His pearls to those who don't carry a value system for them. When he says, I won't throw my pearls before swine, it's not, he's not trying to be insulting. What he's saying is, is that a pig will step over a pearl or a, another gem to get a half-rotted, half-eaten piece of corn cob to chow down on because his value system is totally different. And God, there are, there are treasures of revelation that God will not give to those who cannot value them. And so, so what he does, then, so you, you look at, if you've got to lay all these side by side and you begin to see this pattern emerge. What happens after Jesus teaches this, his disciples ask him two questions. One of them was, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And he quotes the troubling passage out of Isaiah 6. He said, because seeing, lest they see and hear and understand and be healed. He's saying, because if, I, if they enter into this revelation, they can access the good of it. They would be healed. Well, that's troubling. My Lord says, I don't want to release it to them because they could be healed if, I, if, I, if they understood it. What he's saying is if their heart posture isn't correct, they could access the power of that word without... Being right with God. And God's going to withhold those things. Those things are too important. So then, then they say, Jesus, what did this parable mean? We don't understand this parable. As a matter of fact, when he says, they said, why do you teach in, in parables? He says, so that they don't understand, essentially is what he's saying. Look it up yourself. And then he says, but the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you guys. And they're like, wow, hallelujah. And then you know what they say? If you lay them side by side, then they said, it's been given to us? And he's saying, yeah. And they said, okay, what is it? Because they still don't understand. Because I know people who teach on that passage and say, see this, this proves election. Some are elect and some aren't. Some are chosen and some are not. So God, some just read it and they understand because they're, it's been given to them. And others don't understand. It's not what's going on here. What he's saying is, it's been given to who? The ones who care enough to stay after the message and pepper the speaker with questions because what you're saying, I don't understand, but I can sense it's the answer to what I need. And I can't stand, I can't tolerate standing on the outside not knowing what this is all about. I want into the kingdom. I want to understand this stuff. And if, we, if we'll have that heart, it's to them that the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom are given. So the first criteria... Well, the second criteria for revelation is hunger. We said yesterday, what's the first criteria? What did James say? The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all, pure. Heart purity. That we deal with the selfish ambition within our heart that would want to use that revelation for the wrong purposes. If we will deal with that, then the, the pure in heart, what? Shall see you'll open your Bible and you'll see Jesus on every page. If you will go to work and go to 
Go to the Lord and say, God, I want to have a pure heart. Lord, would you shine your light on those areas where I would use this revelation to posture myself and to shine above the rest, as James says. So that, that's the Greek, literally the Greek meaning of the word, God opposes the proud, those who want to shine above the rest. And if we say, God, I want to burn for your purposes. I, I can almost quote that whole passage in James. You know why? Not because I memorized it. Because God has had to take me through that so many times. He's had to deal with my heart. Christopher and I have laughed about it, but kind of painfully. We, you know, here we were, when we were young guys, we would, we would be thinking, okay, I'm gonna, we're seeking the Lord. And then we're thinking, someday they'll write about this. These crazy fantasies about how we're going to be great. And if that's what drives us, God has to withhold from us. Now, there, there is a desire for significance. We don't have time to get in. There's a, a God-given desire for significance, but it's significance within our assignment to fulfill the plan of God for our life. And that's a noble thing, and we need to be zealous about that. But intermixed with that is often some selfish ambition that God wants to get out. And He's a good Father. He doesn't, doesn't say, you deal with that before you talk to me. No, he, he says, let's talk about it. Let's deal with this. And I'm telling you that when James says that, it's the key to getting into Revelation. The pure in heart shall see God. The second key is hunger. How hungry are you? Because hunger is an expression of that value system. The desire to stick around and to chase it down and to lay the passages side by side and ask questions and even pay money to go to some place where there's a, somebody sharing and all that stuff. All those, the reason that matters is because it is an external expression of an internal value system that says, I really want to prioritize this in my life. I want to understand. And so God will begin to lift the veil off those things to bring us into the uh, you know, bring us along in, in, in our walk with God. And so God operates. I'm telling you, the way He operates is by mysteries and revelation. Mysteries and revelation. So it's, it's a troubling thing. Matthew 13, He says, the first type of soil is those who do not understand. And by the way, the reason I teach this way is so they won't understand. <laughs> it's what He's saying. But He's... But the reason is because seeing it is the invitation into the reality. Once you see it, you can have it. And, and that's why people get into the occult because they want to understand these things without a surrendered heart. And they end up in a world of hurt and demonized. But I'm telling you, it's not that God wants to withhold things from you. It's that He's a good Father. He won't release it to you until you can handle it. And so that's what we need. We need that hunger that says, God, Lord, let me in. And cry out for wisdom. Cry aloud. I take that serious. I don't think that's poetry. No, I try to get alone when I do that. But I'll cry. God, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. I was sharing with Pastor Jesus back there. Wave at everybody, Pastor Jesus. He, uh, he pastors in Kewanee, Illinois. We were talking this morning about, I was sharing with him, I was in Minneapolis in 2007. Bill Johnson 
Leif Hetland. I didn't know uh, this guy named Leif. It was the first time I'd ever heard him. And uh, Leif Hetland, Bill Johnson, and Randy Clark. And Bill is teaching. And I am so blown away. There, it's, it was in a Lutheran church, probably 3,000 people there. And I was taking notes on what he said next. I would write it down and then he would say it. And I told Jesus, it wasn't because I knew this stuff. It wasn't because I'm so wise. I am convinced what it was is there is such a spirit of wisdom and revelation on him that it becomes environmental when he teaches at times. There's a time where he'll step into that and it'll just become a blanket over a congregation. And if you, are, if you tap into it, you can actually... I, I'm, I'm writing the notes before he's saying, and it's freaking me out. I just, <laughs> yeah. But it's because of what's on his life. There is such a thing as wisdom and revelation. A spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I'm telling you, God longs to give that to you. If you will pull on that and begin to ask for that, there is an invitation in Scripture. Ask. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. If you will cry out for wisdom, cry aloud for understanding, search for it as hidden treasure. If I were to tell you, hey, by the way, guys, I got a hold of an old fella that used to live in Burlington. He used to own this farmland here on the church. And he told me there's hidden treasure on the, you know, back behind the building. I guarantee you there'd be people out there tonight with flashlight helmets, you know, <laughs> looking around. <laughs> because there's treasure in the book that God invites us into if we will cry out for it. But the criteria is cry out for it. Cry aloud for it. Search for it. And we read that stuff. Oh, I wish I had insight. He's told us how to get it. The pathway is, the tool to dig for that is crying out, asking, hungering, purity of heart. And if we will stir that up, God is a good Father. He longs to bring us into it. But that level of stuff there is more of a process than an event because it's, it's more valuable, that type of wisdom. And then that third one is the unsearchable wisdom hidden within God Himself. That is inaccessible outside of God. No one outside of Christianity can touch that, unless God wants to release it to them. But that, that, is, that is a level of wisdom that God keeps locked up. And I would propose to you that that's what Paul's talking about when he, he talks in Ephesians again and again about the mysteries of the kingdom and the mysteries of what God is doing. Uh, Matthew 13, the, the, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. There are secrets by which God administrates His kingdom. The word kingdom, we, we throw this term around, kingdom. Oh, that's kingdom. The kingdom of God. What we need to understand is the word kingdom in the ancient world, in the biblical world, was not. it wasn't talking about a geographically distinct domain over which a king ruled. That's not, it wasn't a place, it wasn't a, do, a domain, it was dominion. That the word literally is king dome, the king's dominion, not his domain. Matter of fact, in Luke 9, we see this, where Jesus said there was a, there was a, a noble who went off to receive for himself a kingdom. And when he returned, 
his, you know, his servants rejected him. He went to receive a kingdom. Well, that doesn't even make sense in the way we think of it. What it's saying is he went to the king of kings. He went to the emperor uh, to receive the right to rule. So kingdom and authority are really synonymous. It's the right to rule. It's the dominion of God. For And so when the way that God exercises His dominion, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom are the knowledge, the secrets of how God exercises His rule in the earth. It's the pattern. It's His ways. And God longs to bring us in so that we can cooperate as He operates. So that we can get in on this and we can flow with Him. And so when we talk about the kingdom, the vast majority of the time, it's talking about Him exercising His dominion. And then over time it became became the idea of where, where that dominion is exercised. But it's not so much a realm, it's the rule of God. And so He wants to bring you in on the secrets. This is how I operate in planet Earth. This is how the kingdom functions. And when you understand that, you can cooperate with me. So that, that, is a, that sets us up for what I really want to talk about this morning. The, the, so this is what I felt like the Lord was saying this morning. Uh, you know, Christopher yesterday, Christopher last night was talking about disappointment and this heaviness that was over people. And that was, that was a word from the Lord. And I believe the Lord wants to go deeper on that this morning. I believe He wants to break off some things and address some things today. Uh, I was on the front row searching my heart. God, is that me? Because if you've walked with Jesus for any time at all, I've, I've walked with Jesus. This year will be my 40th anniversary of getting saved. And when I got saved, I, you know, God, God's been very good to me, but like any, anybody that's ever walked with Jesus for any time at all, there's some disappointments. I remember crying out to the Lord one day in prayer, and it just popped out of my spirit. When I said it, I kind of, wow, didn't know I felt that way. But this is what I said. I, it wasn't like I thought it. It just kind of popped out. I said, God, I'm disappointed and disillusioned. I thought I had an appointment, and it's based on an illusion. I want to step back and analyze that one. I need counseling. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah, yes. I felt like I felt like I had these appointments with God. I felt like I had promises and they're going to drop in and I'm going to see tremendous breakthrough and we're going to see the expansion of the kingdom and we're going to wrap this thing up by Thursday. You know, I mean this it's coming. I've got promises. I've got prophetic words. I've got a backlog. And as time went on, and I still, to this day, some of this, I don't know if it's denial or delay. But I realized, okay, at least the timing, my perception of the timing was an illusion. And it created disappointment and disillusionment in my heart. Now here's the danger. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And you cannot, comp, you cannot compartmentalize that disappointment. That hope deferred makes the heart. There is a heart sickness called shattered hopes. And it is impossible to compartmentalize that infection. Well, 
I was disappointed about this one area of my life, and, but I'm really excited about the rest, and I'm just going to cordon this off and keep it there. It begins to seep in and infect every other area of your life. And what happens is, best case scenario, until you deal with it, is you begin to lower your expectations. Because the, the idea is, I have my hopes up, my heart got hurt, what I'm going to do is just expect very little. And I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. And if anything good happens, well, then it's gravy. And if it doesn't, I won't be disappointed. My heart's not going to be hurt anymore. And so what happens is we think, oh, now I'm protected. But in actuality, barrenness sets in. And it, and it, and it sabotages and undermines the, that environment of the supernatural and where we're supposed to go with God. We, we start to no longer be open to the supernatural. I had a very troubling realization some time back. I was on Facebook and I'd see different guys show up. Oh, there he is again. His meetings, you know. <laughs> okay, that was what was going on in my heart. Some of, yeah. Don't look at me like that. I know I'm not the only one. But it was like this, this cynicism of good people. And some of them, you know, I, I, I looked at last night. I, I, I saw a guy, this guy phenomenal touch of God on his life. He would have these heavenly encounters. I mean, I, he, was, he was involved in international revivals. From what I can see on Facebook, he's no longer been walking with the Lord. And it's so tragic. And I, he got involved with some global movers and shakers that he saw behind the scenes and it was very disillusioning and heartbreaking to him. And I talked to him after that, but now several years out, I can see where it's taken him. His He's now gone through a divorce. I'm, his wife is off. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. But I'm convinced it's because he didn't deal with his disappointment. Now I'm, I'm praying, God, get him back. He's a wonderful guy. But we've got, we've got to deal with disappointment and disillusionment. And so I woke up early this morning, and the Lord began to talk to me about some things that I just want to share with you. About. When did Bob die, Christopher? See, he's, he's my calendar. I can say, the other day, no, that was three days ago. That was, yeah. I can say, you know, sometime in the last 20 years, he'll tell me the date, the time, and what we had for breakfast. 2017? Okay. It, uh, Bob Phillips, was he was running our school. Some of you knew Bob. Wonderful man of God. Uh, we had brought him on. Christy was his, his right hand and uh, served him well. And uh, Christy waved at everybody so they know who I'm talking about. Christy was his, his secretary assistant. And uh, Bob was a wonderful man. Matter of fact, I was listening to some of his CDs. He had an international radio ministry at one time. and uh, just, just a wonderful man of God. He, he and David Wilkerson started Times Square Church together. And uh, he came on for one year and then dropped over dead of a stroke. It was a huge loss. There were two others during that time period, two other people that were associates in ministry that we had contended for. They had more long-term illness, illnesses. One had had a massive heart attack, was in a coma for a year. The other one contracted cancer. 
and, uh, and we lost all three of those battles. But through that, I'm not bringing this up as an example of disappointment. I'm bringing this up as an example of God began to speak to me about a principle that I believe is relevant to what Christopher was addressing last night. The Lord talked to me about those two that we were contending for that had gotten sick. And He told me they were both case studies in the Spirit. That we need to learn. We were contending, and I mean crying out to God. We would have, we would have corporate prayer meetings for some of these people. And uh, just going after it. And asking the Lord to break in. And the one that we lost to cancer, the Lord began to speak to me out of Hebrews chapter 11, a principle. The other thing the Lord began to talk to me about through the death of Bob and then the death of this individual that died of cancer, tremendous intercessor. Uh, this woman had given her life, decades of her life, to fasting, prayer, intercession, traveling around the state, uh, writ, wrote books on it. A uh, wonderful woman of God. Huge loss. Her husband's still with us. And uh, he, he still hasn't. She was the love of his life. Uh, the Lord began to talk to me about the great cloud of witnesses. When Bob died, Jack Taylor was... Jack, Jack Taylor, he, he since passed away, but Jack called Bob his go-to theology guy. And I remember Jack was so brokenhearted when, when Bob died. Jack called, Jack said to the Lord, he said, well, he called the Lord. He said, we did, we prayed. He said, Lord, why would you take my go-to guy for theology? And the Lord spoke to him this. He said, do you really think that I would give Bob less influence in the kingdom now that he's in heaven? And Bob was no slouch theologically. He's, he was, he's written a lot of best-selling books. But it kind of stunned him and it made him rethink some things. The point I'm getting at is this. We can tend to have this false finish line called death that we measure everything by. And when we do so, when we keep this false finish line called death, when it remains erected in our life as if everything has to be accomplished before I die. Some of the promises God gives us are not for our lifetime. In fact, some of the promises God gives us, Hebrews 11 says He, he denied some legitimate promises because only on visiting it on the next generation could their faith be made perfect. That word perfect means complete, fulfilled. The full completion. What I'm saying is this, is there is a multi-generational dynamic to the kingdom that we ignore to our own risk, our own detriment. We've got to realize, when God refers to Himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's not a one-off, isolated anomaly. Oh, I'm going to work through these three generations, but you know, from then on, it's all individuals. No. There is a multi-generational thing that God is doing. And when we don't understand the concept 
that we have already entered into the powers of the age to come, that we've already entered into eternal life. Eternal life is not something we're hoping to enter into after we die. It began the day you got saved. You entered into eternal life. And our ministry, our service, the mandates on our life don't stop when we're put in the ground. The greatest prayer meeting in all of human history is going on around the throne right now. The book of Revelation is clear. The martyrs are under the throne saying, Lord, how long? How long? Matter of fact, the saints we've lost, they are more invested now than they were when they were down here because they're not encumbered by all the confusion we have down here wondering. They're around the throne and they're seeing from that perspective and they're praying even more. Now, Hear me out here. Don't accuse me of being a heretic, okay? This is where the Catholics got of praying to the saints. I do not agree with praying to the saints, but I do agree the saints are praying. Okay? It's not that we, you know, I'm going to dial in Bob. Hey, Bob, could you put in a word for me around the throne? You know? (laughs) But I guarantee Bob's already putting in a word around the throne. Because... He already he entered into the powers of the he entered into eternal life many decades ago when he surrendered to Jesus and he this mantle fell upon his life for a purpose and that purpose didn't fall when he crossed over that that threshold into eternity shed this body he's still working towards those ends and if we don't understand that we can get very disillusioned and very discouraged Because in our American mentality, it's all about us. Even in a, even if it's we've shed that heart, you know, that that selfish ambition thing, and it's out of a pure heart, we can still, in a pure heart, make it all about us. As if I I used to sit under this international minister, a tremendous man of God, but I remember him getting up in the pulpit one day and saying, "If I don't do it, it'll never get done." He said, I am called to evangelize the world. And if I don't do it, it'll never get done. And I remember my little puny 23-year-old mind thinking, "Uh uh-oh. And sure enough, within two years, the whole thing blew up. It's because there was an unhealthy sense of it's all got to happen in my lifetime. When Scripture's clear, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at this. you know, it's the, the, uh, the faith chapter. Look at verse 32. Uh, or look, look at verse 29. And if I'm not careful, we're going to go back to one. So we'll go to 29. By faith. So he's talking about all the things that are accomplished by faith, right? So verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on the dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then after all these, that's where, those are the stories we want. Those are the stories we want to talk about. Man, sign me up. I, I want in. 
And right in the middle of the verse, he doesn't even do it after a new verse has started. He shifts gears and does a head spin. Some were tortured. Now listen to what it says. Refusing to accept release. It doesn't say that God refused them. They refused release. What is the deal with that? Tells us why. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others were suffer, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So it's talking about faith and people who saw a great breakthrough, achieving faith, moving, moving mountains. And, and uh, man, we need to go after that. I want to see more of that kind of faith in my life and the body of Christ. Man, let's go after it. But then he shifts gears and says there's another group that didn't receive what was promised. And that's the group of which he says, of whom the world was not worthy. He's insinuating there was a higher level of faith. There was something greater that they stepped into by revelation. So he goes on. Wandering about in deserts, mountains, and dens, and caves of the earth. Let me just pause here. I read a quote the other day. I thought it was so good. I wish I'd have snapshotted it. Uh, someone was talking about the Word of Faith movement, man, the Word of Faith movement has taken a lot of abuse in the last decade. All these documentaries coming out and stuff. And uh, it was talking about how essentially, I, I don't remember how they worded it, but they were saying that, you know, when people, when people start to criticize people for believing that, th this is my words, the kingdom of God will affect your finances. The kingdom of God will affect your health. Emotionally, physically, financially, socially, your relationships become more healthy. Why is it that we're okay with all that except finances? Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't touch that. God wants you really healthy but poor. The fact is that the kingdom of God has application on all these areas. And the guy pointed out, he said this, could it be that because we've lived in a season of such, where the gospel has gone forth, uh, let me back up. I think it was John Adams that said, I must study war and government so that my children, no, I, I must study, study war so my children can study government, so my grandchildren can study science and art. Or I think maybe the second one was science, mathematics. So the third generation can study art and music. And I, I thought that was a brilliant statement. What he's tapping into is there is an upward lift to freedom. He was talking about in our country. That when we lay the foundation right, it grants more, more and more liberty so our kids can touch into things that we, you know, the first generation doesn't have the luxury. They're just trying to keep things protected. The same is true of the gospel. That when the gospel enters a culture and that culture begins to be Christianized 
and that culture begins to come under the influence of the kingdom, then prosperity does happen. It is not a mistake that the, the, the American dream, the, the American uh, experiment rather, has produced the greatest prosperity in all of human history. Because of the gospel. The gospel has an effect on everything. Now, if that becomes your goal, no, you're off. But it is, a, it, it is a, an expression of what's going on. However, from this passage, there are some that live destitute in deserts and caves. Somebody has to pay the price for others to break into the, bene, the other benefits. Okay? There are pioneers that have to pound to move into what God wants for us. There's, there's, there's those who pay the price so the next generation can live in the benefits of the cost paid by the previous generation. And God is looking for those who are willing to be those people. Are we willing to say, I'm going to live my life in such a way that my grandbabies can live in the breakthrough? The breakthrough I may never see, but they're going to inherit because of the life I live. I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to, I'm going to structure my life for breakthrough. So he says this, verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let me go through verse 39 again. All of these, though commended through their faith. So, the Word of God says it was real faith. It wasn't presumption. It wasn't that they, they were just presuming that, and you know, it wasn't real faith. They got off and so it was real faith. And then it says, and did not receive what was promised. It was a real promise. It wasn't that they got a false prophetic word that they exercised real faith, but oh, it's sad, you know, the, the, the prophet was off and so they believed in the wrong thing and that's why they didn't receive. No, it's real faith and a real legitimate promise, but they died never seeing it. That is a possibility in the kingdom. That God can give you a real promise. It's not that you failed. You exercised real faith, but you don't see the breakthrough. Why? Because it's going to be visited on the next generation. And if we don't carry that as part of our grid work, if we don't have room for that in our theology, we can get offended with God and feel like, God, you lied to me. Lord, you told me that this was going to happen. And you didn't come through. Or, we, rather than accusing God, we, get, we accuse ourselves. Oh, I, I guess I'm a loser. Man, even the promises of God don't work in my life. Oh, And so we either accuse God or accuse ourselves because we fail to understand this very real dynamic in the kingdom that God operates multi-generationally. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if God has chosen you to be an Abraham or an Isaac so Jacob can be visited, that is a powerful, wonderful thing. You have already entered the powers of the age to come. You are living an eternal life. 
So this false finish line of death has been erased. You're already living in eternal. Someday you're going to shed this thing, and the older I get, the more I'm longing for that, to enter into this. But my, the call on my life doesn't cease when I die. I'm invested in this thing. And so if I can get an eternal, multi-generational perspective, there are things that we're crying out for that are going to be visited on the next generation. So, say all that, let's shift gears. Sunday morning, last Sunday morning, I wake up, and uh, I'm thinking about Asbury. The Asbury outpouring. And, and uh, one of our staff were out there, and I was jealous. And uh, I'm thinking, and I'm hearing about these other pockets. And how many of you have heard Dutch Sheets talk about the open vision he had in 2001? Now, there's a video going on that's gone viral now that's going out. People are listening to it. And someone said to me, well, why did he wait till now to share it? I can tell you that I heard him share that and shared it from our pulpit probably 17 years ago. And when I shared it, I remember, because, okay, let me, let me for those of you who haven't heard it, this is what happened. Dutch, it's right after 9-11. He's scheduled to preach at a conference. I want to say it was in Wyoming. What, Idaho? I mean, we're talking a small conference. You know, was there eight people in that state? So he's going to, he's going to and, and all of a sudden, all the flights are shut down. He can't go. And he's like relieved because he doesn't want to go. He's, the whole country's traumatized. He said, I had no answer. I had no word from the Lord. And all of a sudden, the flights open up. He goes, and he's getting up in the pulpit. He's like, I don't even know what to say. He's preaching. And while he's preaching, he said, I go into an open vision. And he's watching this thing. And he said, I just begin to narrate it to the people. And what the vision was is he saw God begin to fall on the colleges and the high schools of America. And he said it was so intense. Kids were getting hit by the power of God. And it, they, would, they would be in these rooms for days on end. And the administrators would be wringing their hands in the boardroom say, I'm going to go in and shut this down. They'd go in and get hit under the power of God. They'd be laid out. Another one would go in to shut it down and they'd be laid out and another and another. And he said, I saw college after college and I'm calling out the names of these colleges. He said, but I began to realize it's not that it's isolated to those colleges. These are just the examples of what God's going to do. He's going to visit the colleges of America. And he said, while he's in this open vision, he said, it's right before him. He said, oh my goodness, it's going to be hard to steward this thing. Because some of these kids aren't even going to know. They're unchurched. They don't know anything. And they're going to be in the... And then he, told, he talked about... I just heard this part last week. He was talking about the Jesus People Movement, which I don't think it's a coincidence. This movie came out right now. Come on, come on. Sometimes the creatives in Hollywood tap into what's going on in the spirit before the church does. And so, this whole, uh, one of the famous bands, a love song, they, uh, they got saved, the, you know, these rock stars, they got saved and start going to Chuck Smith's church and they all get baptized and they say, we need to celebrate, this is awesome. We're in, we have a new life. And so the way they celebrated is they'd go roll a joint and smoke it. So they went and they smoked a doobie together, you know, to celebrate their baptism. And a few, over a few weeks, they began to realize, you know what? I don't think Jesus wants us to do that anymore, you know? <laughs> and so they stopped doing it. Nobody taught them the Spirit of God did. And so he was saying that that's what he felt. It's like, oh my goodness. There's two homosexuals that get saved, and they're showing up at church together, 
because they just encountered Jesus. They don't even, they're still processing this. And we're going to have to learn to steward this and help break. I'm not talking about compromising on holiness, but I'm talking about being good fathers and mothers and dealing with the mess that they're in and, and bringing them along. And so Dutch shares this years ago. I get up in our pulpit. I share that. And I felt something come up over my back and shoot out over the congregation. I was like, oh my goodness. There is heat on that word. This was 15, 16 years ago now. So I said, everybody, turn towards Iowa State. It's just to the north of us. We're like 30 miles south of Iowa State. And we just started praying, God, we ask for an awakening on Iowa State. We're just going after it. It was Saturday night. They're a wild crowd. We're not. The next day, I get a phone call. Revival broke out on Iowa State. There was a group of cessationist Calvinists the power of God fell on them. A bunch of healing began to flow. A bunch of people were getting saved. And they started this little house of prayer for a season on Iowa State. And it didn't, it didn't last more than, a, you know, maybe, maybe a month in, in strength. But I always felt like, whoa, that was a token. That was God's little kiss to tell us, this is what I'm going to do. And I believe we may be stepping into that season. So I'm waking up Sunday morning and I'm contemplating all this, thinking, oh Lord, man, you're visiting Asbury. And this has been, this is where my heart's been. I've had the privilege of being parts of move, moves of God. I've been in revival settings. I've even had the pleasure of being in leadership in some revivals. And it is glorious. It is wonderful. But the danger is, I was telling my 17-year-old son this, I said, I said, Nathaniel, our church has a reputation of being a, and in some people's mind, the revival church in our region. The danger is, is our history can create an apathy that assumes, well, if God's going to show up, He's going to show up here. And that is exactly the wrong posture. The Lord's asked me before, He said, what if, what if you fast and pray and I send revival to the Reformed Church across the street? Will you still pray as much? Well, I had to work through that. Well, I want to see revival. God's moving at the... Or what if God moves at a church that's back... Uh, they, they've, they've slandered your church. Are you hungry enough to crawl in the back just to get under that? Name... Went to the prophet. He said, I need healed. He wanted him to bring out dignitaries and anoint him with oil. Instead, he sent on a servant and said, go, go dip in our muddy river. And his arrogance said, we have cleaner rivers in my country. Sometimes God will require you to dip in a river that you consider theologically muddy. It's not everything I agree with. You know Randy Clark? Randy is really one of the heroes of the faith in this day and age. He really is. I mean, it's, it's amazing what God has done with that man's life. The power of God on his life. He has equipped hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people through his conferences. I mean, just an amazing touch of God. You know what happened? You know how Randy first broke into that? Randy was a Southern Baptist 
that came into the vineyard movement, but he had a real beef with the Word of Faith movement. He was down. Matter of fact, he pastored just down the street, from what I understand, from Rick Shelton, who really got into renewal. Rick had a big church life. I used I would I've gone there before when I lived down in St. Louis, and uh, Randy would get up on a Sunday morning. He'd say, "Welcome to the vineyard." And by the way, if you're one of those blab it, grab it, name it, claim it people, we're not the church for you. There's the door. It's up the street. His wife was like, Randy. I know we don't have to be seeker sensitive, but seeker hostile. You know, maybe that. You know, she was saying, Randy, this is he, he, I don't have time for that. But Randy began to hear of the rumors of revival. And there was a guy named Rodney Howard Brown. He's called the Holy Ghost Bartender. He was controversial. He was. Very offensive in people's minds. To a lot of people, what flowed from him was a muddy river. Lo and behold, he was going to be speaking at Rama Bible Institute in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the citadel of Word of Faith. And the Lord said, if you want it, go, go to Rama and have Randy pray for you. And his hunger overcame his prejudice. And he went and sat and every chance he got, he would have Rodney pray for him. And I, what was it, Chris, for third or fourth time he prayed for him? Figured you'd know. And the last time, his hands turned like freezing. And Rodney said, pray, on everything that, pray for everything that moves. So Randy goes back home. Revival breaks out in his church. So then the regional leaders of, the, of Vineyard said, hey, why don't you speak at the regional meeting? Broke out there. John and Carol Arnott out of Toronto Airport Vineyard said, hey, would you come up and do a weekend of meetings? And the rest is history. Launched the Toronto Revival, the Brownsville Revival, the Smithton Revival. Heidi Baker received her impartation from Randy. Leif Hetland received his impartation from Randy. And hundreds of lesser known people. But he had to go and dip in a river that he thought was muddy. And sometimes, I'm not talking about the, the, the essentials of the faith, but sometimes God will require you to go and drink from somebody that isn't theologically adept like you think you are. How hungry are we? Jesus. Had I felt that. Son of David, do not pass us by. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing at Asbury and Lee and all these other places. But Lord, we're asking, don't forget Iowa. Don't forget Illinois. Lord, don't pass us by. Lord, visit our houses. Jesus, do whatever you have to do in us so you can visit us. We side with you against us, Lord. Do whatever you have to do, Jesus. Hallelujah. So, last Sunday morning, I began to think about 
a passage I hadn't preached on in many years. I'm familiar with it. I've preached on it in the past. I want you to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And God began to speak to me afresh on principle of delay and divinely inspired barrenness. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. I love this passage. It's so poetic, the way the rhythm of it and just the way it it sums up the passages with these little punchy phrases. And here comes one. He had two wives. The, one, the name of one was Hannah and the other was Peninnah. And here it is. And Peninnah had children. But Hannah, the NIV says Hannah had none. The ESV says Hannah had no children. Now this, was, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though, and here is the troubling phrase, the Lord had closed her womb. Now, mind you, this is not, this is not some, this is their cultural interpretation of, of normal medical barrenness. This is the word of the Lord here. It wasn't a misdiagnosis that we can go back, well, that was just their confused way of... No. The Bible says the Lord closed Hannah's womb. That needs to trouble us. Because behind those troubling phrases are principles that will help us if we mine them out. Verse 6, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. I find it interesting. It was when they went to the house of the Lord that that provocation would arise. And I think a very valid interpretation of this is that God, you could look at this as two churches. The Hannah church and the Peninnah church. One is producing children and the other has none. You can look at it as believers. And my point is this. God will bring a Peninnah in your life to provoke you. It says, look at verse, the end, end of verse 7. So it went on year after year. She went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. It was almost like an involuntary fast. She was so grieved and so broken over her own barrenness. She wanted to produce children and, and she couldn't make it happen. And so year after year, this other gal would provoke her. It was like she was a living example of what she wanted and it provoked something in her. And then make matters worse, the, the lady overtly just would be cruel to her and it got her in touch with that that barrenness till she would weep and not eat. 
And it's like, but here, it, this, this, this barrenness was imposed of the Lord. And I would propose to you that there, is a, there are times where there is a God-ordained purpose behind our barrenness. That God will withhold the breakthrough from you while everyone else around you is getting it. That you become the Hannah where everybody else is a Peninnah. And you're doing the same things. You might even be doing more of it. But you're not seeing the breakthrough because God Himself has withheld it from you. Like we read in Hebrews 11. It was real faith and a real promise. But some were denied and some even refused. Some were denied. They had to go into this in the dark. They don't understand. But it says, the world was not worthy of them. Why? Because even though they had a promise they knew was from God, and they were dying without seeing it, and they didn't understand, they were in the dark, they were refused, but they still said, with their dying breath, essentially, they're saying, I don't understand it. I know I heard from God, and He is good. I'm not going to accuse Him. I just don't understand. Boom. (laughs) Others actually had the revelation, so they said, no, I refuse. You know what? I could cash out right now the investments I've made in the Spirit. I could get this breakthrough, but it insinuates that they literally could have gotten deliverance, and they refused because they said, you know what? The gains of my sacrifice, I'm going to roll it over and reinvest it. I'm not going to spend it in my lifetime. I'm going to reinvest it so the generations coming after me will live in the wealth that I created by my life. I'm going to to live in such a way that they're going to receive the breakthrough that I labored for. And let me just pause here. Because it's so important for us to realize when we talk about... I talked about this yesterday and I keep bumping up against this it's like in the spirit with people that they only have, they have two scenarios for their frustration. That I'm praying and God's in heaven and either He is ignoring me or I'm disqualifying myself. That's the only two answers that they can, they can conceive of why they're not seeing their breakthrough. But there is this other element We need to have as part of our biblical theology a theology of an enemy who opposes us. And so our contending really is dealing with this thing. And at times, so like when Daniel fasted 21 days, the fast went 21 days before the breakthrough, but the angel said, I set out the day that you started praying. So the hesitancy, the reluctance, the barrier to the answer was not on God's end. And it wasn't Daniel's fault. It was the opposition of the enemy. So we've got to have that. We've got to have an understanding that there is a very real battle that we tie into that we're contending. Paul is very clear. New Testament theology. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. However, we do wrestle with principalities and powers and spirits in high places and wickedness in high places. So there is this contention. There's a battle we still live in. We're still living in a wartime scenario. What I'm saying is we now need to add to that that there are times where it's not the enemy. It is God. But if we don't have an understanding of what's really going on in the the scenario of divine delay, we can get offended and cynical. 
And so here's what I'm trying to explain. This is what I'm trying to get across today. There are times where God will withhold the breakthrough from you because He has a greater purpose behind it. You see this? See, there are, there are believers who are living with barrenness and they're frustrated and they, they, they get under condemnation or they get under accusation towards the divine. They start saying, God, you said, you said, you said. When there's a place, and the people that really live this way, Hebrews says, of them the world is not worthy. They've stepped into a higher level where they say, God, I don't, you don't need to explain to me. I believe even when I haven't received because they understood it's going to be visited on a future generation. So we see this scenario again and again in Scripture. We have, uh, uh, what is it, Isaiah, someone help me here, Isaiah 53, no, single barren woman, Six, is it 60, yeah, it's in there, believe me, Google it, see, you know, <laughs> single barren woman, for more is the, more are the children of the barren woman than she who has children. So there's this thing of, in your barrenness, begin to sing out. Because there's more are the children. There's a breakthrough for barrenness. 54. Okay. See, I told you it was in there. <laughs> Single barren woman. I would propose to you that not only more are the children of the barren woman, but greater are the children of the barren woman. All through Scripture, you see these heroes of the faith coming out of barren wombs. What's the deal with that? What is the deal with that? Why is it that Isaac, why is it that Samson, why is it that you know Joseph, why is it that all these people came out of barren? Samuel came out of a barren womb. One morning, I was, Mondays I take the day off, so I'm laying in bed, and uh, just my wife's up, she gets up early, and uh, so I'm, I'm just laying in bed, and I grab my phone, I'm reading the Word, and I'm reading about John the Baptist, and how he was baptized in his mama's womb. It's an amazing thing. So I said to the Lord, I said, God, that'd be really great if you'd just do that with all of us. You know, how about that be your new pattern? You know, I'm like, wh why him and not us? I mean, if you would have just baptized us all in our mother's womb, we could have, you know, started out on the right foot here. I didn't expect an answer. I was just kind of thinking out loud. And the Lord spoke to me. And this is what he told me. He said, the barrenness on Elizabeth caused many more years of prayer and intercession so that I could visit it on Him. Here's the principle that I believe the Lord wants us to get a hold of today. There are those who have to put up with delay longer than normal so that the next generation can come in earlier than normal. You look at Samuel. The Lord had closed her womb. Divine barrenness. 
God had put the stop on her. She was, she was a hurting unit. So what does God do? He provides a provocation in her environment, causes her to weep, she, you know, self, or kind of an involuntary fast. She's brokenhearted. She's crying out to God. But then, she, so she goes and she's, she's crying out to God. But then her husband comes to her and says, Honey, you're a little obsessed here. I mean, I know you want kids, but don't I mean anything to you? Don't I mean more to you than 10 cents? Classic husband, you know. It's like makes it about him, you know. <laughs> and, uh, come on, ladies. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I, I'm talking about me too. And, uh, but she's, she's inconsolable. She refuses to be consoled by the fact that she's loved by her husband. She wants to produce something through her life. I mean, just a little side issue. I, I, I saw a post last night on one of those social media things. And someone said this. They said, the opposite of revivalism is the sloppy grace movement. I thought, that's interesting. The opposite of revivalism is the sloppy grace movement. Now, I don't know what they meant, but I believe they're touching on a reality. Because there's something about revival that says, God, we've got to see you show up in all your glory in our generation. Lord, I don't want to pass through life having never witnessed heaven coming to earth in that way. It is intolerable on my dying bed to say to my grandkids, well, you know, we, we never saw God move. I, I want to see it. Now, okay, some of what we're crying out for, they're going to see. But there's, there needs to be this hunger in our hearts. And the false consolation of Elkanah to his wife Hannah, he says, honey, doesn't it mean anything that I love you? Just, just coast through life knowing that you're loved. Being productive is not important. And she would have none of it. There was something within her that God had provoked out of her. God placed it in her, provoked it out of her, and He withheld from her. All the, in the process of this building of this frustration. And then she's in the, in the tent of meeting. She's crying out. And Al, Eli, he's a backslidden priest. He comes in and, woman, you're drunk. When are you going to put away your bottle? And she looks up and she says, it's interesting how often in Scripture you see people being accused of being drunk when it's the Spirit. And uh, this was not, this, you know, you got the happy one in Acts 2 and the, the travail one in 1 Samuel. And she says, no, you don't understand. I'm crying out. I, I have a request before the Lord. I'm, I'm grieved in heart. And he said, well, so be it unto you. Just, uh, the the off-the-cuff comment of a backslidden priest, she grabs that thing by faith, tackles her husband when they get home, and uh, the rest is history. And so she has, she has Samuel. This, this, and so there's something about Samuel that was special. There's something about Samuel that he was a transition man. And what I'm saying is, see, Samuel, it, I, I love, again, the next passage in chapter 2, it's so poetic. It's saying, uh, Eli had grown overweight, and he, his, yea, his eyes were dimming, and lo, the ark. The, the candle of the Lord was about to go out and the word of the Lord was rare. I mean, it's painting a pretty bleak, in a poetic way, a very bleak situation. But then it says, and there was Samuel. 
a little boy in a linen ephod. This little boy running around with a priest outfit on. I mean, it's almost cute. You're a little toddler running around. But he'd been birthed in prayer. He's being raised in the house of the Lord, laying before the ark, and the Lord reveals himself to him as a little boy. What's the deal? We have God's answer in the form of a little boy. This little boy was pulled into things early. Why? Because his mom and dad entered in late. Because it was a delay for her, it was, she was, he was able to enter in early. We see the same with John. John is filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. That when the angel shows up to Zechariah, John's dad, he's, he's the one that is he's going to burn incense in the tent. He comes in the temple and this angel shows up and he says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. That is an amazing statement because this guy is married to a woman who is well beyond her childbearing years. Now there's one of two possibilities. I think it's the former. It's either that they prayed prayers long ago asking God for children and they now gave up because, well, I guess we're just one of those couples that are never going to have it happen because she's... She's went through menopause. She's having hot flashes and getting up in the middle of the night. <laughs> or, or they're still praying beyond the natural and saying, God, we want a son. Either one is, an, is really amazing. One's amazing about Zechariah if he's still praying. I think it's more likely that the angel is referring to unanswered prayers from decades earlier. And the angel's saying, listen, you've got to understand, your prayers never fall to the ground. They're still hovering at the throne, and now's the time. And it was this frustration of delay that they kept investing in that secret and crying out to God. There was something happening in the Spirit. Now, you might think, well, Dave, I think you're, you're stretching that beyond the interpretation. I'm just telling you, I was laying in bed that morning, reading that passage. I asked the Lord, God, why don't you fill us all with the in their mother's rooms, and he told me, he said, because the mother's travail, her contending all those years was able to clear the way for things in John's life so that he could start farther down the road is essentially what he told me. Got in my car that day, drove to Nebraska. I was speaking at a ministry school way in central Nebraska. I get there that night preaching, going to lay hands on all the students, prophesying over them. And this one young man came up. I'm ready to prophesy over him. And I looked at him, and all of a sudden the Lord's, Reminded me what he told me this morning. I said, this morning I was in bed and I told him what I was saying, that, that at times God will withhold a child from a praying mama so that her prayers can be invested in his future. And it really enables that child to start farther down the road than his peers. Because there are things that are cleared in those travail years so that the child of their old age starts out farther down the road. And I told him that, and his eyes got real big. He said, I can't believe you just said that. He said, my mom and dad tried and tried to have kids for years. They couldn't have kids. My mom was not able to conceive. And they prayed and prayed. And finally, in their elder years, they had me. So I told him, I said, buddy, Steward it well. <laughs> there are divine delay, whether it's a temporary thing or whether it's 
you don't see it well beyond the grave. The world is not worthy of those who still believe the promise, even if it, it isn't answered by the time they're laid to rest. And when we understand, when we get a grid work for that, that, that the grave is a false finish line. That's some imagine, that, that was the result of the fall, that that curse has now been removed. We've entered into the, power, to the age to come. We're already living in it now. That's a real comfort to me. Because what I'm laboring for, I don't know how many years I got left. If I have 40, I'm going to live to an old man. If I got 40 years left, I don't just have 40 years left. I've got eternity to be who God called me to be and to release what He's put within me in the kingdom. It goes from now throughout eternity. And so I don't have to put these false, illusionary expectations that God will drop things in our spirit that He wants to do. And sometimes He will give you promises that He fully intends to withhold from you so that there can be a building of that spiritual wealth that He'll visit on the second and third generation. Because He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God has put things in some of you. I, I, when Christopher was saying that last night, man, I felt that. And I feel like the Lord wants to lift that off of you today. This false paradigm. I'm telling you, your prayers matter. If you've never seen one ounce of movement on it, if you've prayed and asked the Lord to do things and you've seen no movement, that doesn't mean just because you haven't seen it, it's not happening. There is an accumulation in the Spirit. There are things happening before we realize it. There are battles being fought, barriers being removed, the accumulation of spiritual resources that are being stored up that I sometimes just have to take completely by faith. But when I realize these principles, all of a sudden it lifts off me. Wow. I'm in this for the long haul. How long? Forever. Forever. I mean, there may be some things He's promised me ain't going to happen till the millennium. <laughs> I don't know. doesn't matter. We're in this thing for the long haul. Deb, come on up here. I want you to share something. You, Deb was sharing with me. Uh, Deb's part of our church. Precious woman of God. You got a microphone. Uh, she was. She she grew up here, right? Is that is that correct? And uh, she she got saved. Uh, was a party girl. Got saved. I don't know how old she was when she got saved, but she got pulled into a little group of prayer warriors in Burlington. And uh, I don't know. Uh, are are any of them alive today, or is, is some of them still alive, or are they all gone to be with the Lord? So. I want you to just share real quick because here's the thing. There's a history in this city. Some of them before, some of you guys were here. God's always working multi-generationally. We're building on the labors of the last generation and the next generation is going to move into the resources that we labored for. And that is God's intention. That's not a bummer. That's not, well, I wanted to spend it. No. We're, we're building generationally. And uh, last night, I, I, I felt like the other morning I wanted Deb to share. And then last night as I went over to and prayed for her, I just felt like there was even an authority that she's inherited because of the people she was related to. So I want you to just, just share about that prayer meeting and, 
And uh, I think they need to know. Some of you may know these ladies, so throw out some names if you feel the liberty. So, Lance, um, 